This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. Clara Phillips was in the wind after a jailbreak that made international news. She was gone for months with the help of her parents and Armour and Armour's family and a curious admirer. Newspaper reporters continued to dig for information about her escape, and federal investigators searched the world for Clara while she lay low with her sister and someone else. They weren't hiding alone. Remember, Clara needed a host of people to help her escape. And according to author Claudine Burnett, it turns out that Los Angeles journalists were just as diligent as the police, maybe even more. A journalist was the one who discovered that Clara was traveling with her sister and a mystery man. It was a reporter from The Examiner who finally decided to trace the money. And he found that Armour had wired money to his sister in Galveston, who then wired the money to a fellow by the name of Jesse Carson in Honduras, who was passing it on to Clara and Clara's sister, who was there with her. And now Jesse Carson was in Honduras with the women. His relationship with Clara Phillips was complicated. Daniel Phillips says Jesse was an odd character, even more odd than most of the people in this story. He's a guy that came and was one of the spectators at the uh, trial. And he got all enthralled with, I think, the legend. (laughs) Uh, He was completely in in rapture of her and even was left a wife and two or three children to basically kind of be her rescuer. He was at the trial every single day and he looked at Clara with romance in his eyes. He just thought she was the most beautiful, fascinating woman he had ever seen. He wrote her notes saying that he was going to be the one that was going to get her out of prison. 
So Jesse Carson was one of numerous cogs in the machine that was built to facilitate Clara's escape and then her life of hiding. It was extraordinary. So many people risked jail time, even their lives, for her. And now Jesse Carson was a main player in this tale. He kind of fancied himself as a soldier of fortune. And so when they found her guilty, he was said to have communicated to her as she was leaving the courthouse, I can help you get out. And so the press picked this up for many issues of the newspaper. They thought that maybe Jesse Carson had actually done it, though there were reports that Clara was seen in a car with a man that looked more like armor when she fled. But what did Jesse Carson get out of this whole arrangement? What did he benefit from taking all of these risks? Clara was married, not happily, but she was married. Daniel Phillips thinks that his great aunt made a lot of promises that she never intended to keep. I don't have to sell my virtue. I can just give the idea that I might. And in those days, that was enough in some cases. She even said, supposedly to to Jesse Carson, that she actually had some oil property that she would share with him if he would help her stay out of the clutches of the folks that are trying to put her in prison. So Jesse, Olame, and Clara all stayed quiet in Honduras for months. She kept a low profile. Jesse Carson got her to dye her hair black. But then someone new became involved, someone more inventive than a lot of the investigators who were searching for Clara. It was an American reporter from the Los Angeles Examiner, Morris Levine. Levine had covered the case extensively during the trial, and when Clara escaped, he was determined to track her down. So Levine traced Armour's money from Armour's bank to his sister Sadie in Galveston, and then to Clara and Olame in South America. After almost five months, Levine found them. No one else had been able to do that. So Morris went in there and he said, to her that if you're not guilty, here's an opportunity to go back and prove your innocence. And that way you're not going to have to go to jail, particularly, you know, if you're wanting to get a new trial. He said it's going to be to your benefit. Morris Levine was a very successful journalist for the Hearst newspaper, a front-page reporter. And while Levine was happy to be helpful to investigators, the 27-year-old wasn't just being altruistic. He also was trying to see if he could be the one that had an exclusive with her, both on what she had gone through as well as when she did go back. So Clara really thought about Levine's suggestion. She considered whether she could really stay in hiding for the rest of her life in Honduras. Yes, she had learned Spanish, but it might not be an easy life. And she just couldn't count on armor to send her money forever. She would have appreciated some legal advice, but her defense attorney had died shortly after her murder trial. Clara tried to sort out her endgame, and she still thought that she could get out of this, even in Los Angeles. Clara told Levine, okay, I'll turn myself in to the local police. So when she agreed to do that was about the same time that the undersheriff of L.A. County, Sheriff Biscalas, and his wife, who was actually a matron, and another L.A. sheriff's deputy traveled down to Honduras Morris Levine traveled with them as part of his deal for revealing her location in Honduras. When they met Clara and Olame in the local jail, they were alone. Honduran police had already arrested Jesse Carson on arson charges he previously had in America. So he was gone. Jesse was out of the picture, so they were just dealing with the two women. So they came in, they at first played cat and mouse with them a little bit. 
Of course, Clara and Olame played back. They refused to admit who they really were, and then the sheriff decided to be a little more direct. They finally said, look, we know who you are, <laughs> and we're going to take you back to serve your sentence or go through your new trial. So Morris Levine had already done a good job of convincing the girls to go ahead and come back. Clara agreed to waive extradition. She signed all the paperwork. She and Ola May would leave with the sheriff the next day. But Clara already had a different plan in place. A few days earlier, she had recruited about 15 local teenagers in Honduras for a special mission. Another jailbreak. She was looking for someone to take Jesse Carson's place and be able to kind of spirit her onto wherever she was going to go to finally lose these suckers from chasing her. And the teenagers seemed happy to help. In the middle of the night, they carried a huge ladder to the side of the jail and propped it up against the wall. Clara and Ola May planned to climb down through an open window and disappear into the night yet again. It seemed ridiculous. What was her long-term goal? Was she going to move to another country? Clearly, yes. She believed that Armour would always stand by her. He would never stop protecting her. Clara was certainly wrong about that. As Clara and Olame prepared to leave the jail, someone tipped off the local police. Officers rushed over and removed the ladder. Clara was caught. And this time, she wouldn't be able to talk her way out of handcuffs. They drove from Honduras to the coast, which I think was in Guatemala, and then caught a ship, the Copan, into New Orleans. She was back in America now, no longer a fugitive on the run. But she had convinced so many people along the way that she was innocent. She planned to just keep doing that as she geared up for her second trial in Los Angeles. And it was one of these stories that she would also tell everybody else. And they started to believe her. And she started embellishing the story about how Peggy had done it. She actually believed that Peggy had done it. So Clara seemed delusional. And I think that story makes sense if Clara had ever shown a tiny bit of remorse or guilt or regret. But she felt none of that. Even so, she still might wiggle out of prison time because, remember, the prosecutor in Los Angeles had promised her a new trial if she waived extradition. All she needed to do was convince one juror, one male juror, that she was innocent. And she'd be back with her husband, back to her old life. Clara Phillips was ready to take control once again. And Daniel Phillips says it all started with that train ride. They had reporters and stuff that were on the train. And the San Diego Union made her a deal that she could write her life story in installments from the time that she was born until the time that she was delivered to authorities in L.A. The series was titled Clara Phillips Narrates' Own Story of Tempestuous Life. Her promise of an exclusive story to Morris Levine had expired. This newspaper series with the Union was the vehicle that Clara needed to reach her fans, all of the advocates who would rally around her at the courthouse. They would demand her freedom. She never stopped scheming. She had contingency plans in the background, just in case. She was always looking for the angle, and that, I think, made her not lose faith in herself. It made her feel like there's always going to be a way for me to get out of this mess. 
Clarafield shared her story with the reporter, and she glowed as she talked about how she and Armour met when they were young. And as she arrived at a port in New Orleans, Louisiana, she grinned. There was a massive crowd waiting there. And then there was another one at the train station where she headed next. Claire smiled and waved at everyone. She was grateful for the support as she stepped onto the train and it pulled away. And then when she went into Texas, there was Armour's family to greet her and give her their support. That seems unbelievable. Why would they embrace her after everything she had done? But Armour's family seemed devoted to Clara, no matter what. She had my Aunt Sadie convinced. They showed up at the train station in Houston and just showing nothing but support. Her brother Henry, who was, again, a laborer, was there in his work clothes, you know, showing support. Daniel Phillips says he just doesn't understand it. It was almost like they forgot that she killed somebody. <laughs> you know? <laughs> confusing. Did they dismiss that or did they not believe it or what allowed them to compartmentalize it to just sort of focus on this is our relative? All the above. I think uh, all the above was in play, but ultimately it was family loyalty. That's where you saw the Weavers and the Phillips family join ranks and they were saying family right or wrong. She's blood or she's married blood. So, you know, that makes her part of the family. She needs to be treated right, and if she's going back for a new trial, she deserves to be treated right and let her go through the new trial. For Clara, it was a continuation of the con, and the con was continuously developing. The trip from Houston to Los Angeles was about 1,500 miles, just long enough for Clara to finish her life story. As she did, the reporter put down his pad and studied her. It was clear that she thought she would be able to get away with murder again. Her charm would convince the jury of her innocence again. Boy, was she wrong. The most infamous cases of the 1920s were depicted in popular radio shows like Calling All Cars. This episode aired in 1934, the following decade. It's all about Clara Phillips. She would have loved that. And it's called Hammers in Honduras. You'll find out, you dirty little homewrecker. Clara, what do you mean? Get that Betty. Yeah, what do you mean? I don't understand. Well, then I'll tell you. I mean my husband. That's what I mean. you got to let him alone. You get that? Oh, you must be crazy, Clara. There's nothing between Armour and me. No, I know difference. But I tell you that. Clara, but listen. But Clara Phillips was already infamous by the time her train pulled into the Los Angeles station on April 23, 1923. She gathered her things and prepared to leave. But then the sheriff stopped her. No, she wasn't going anywhere. Aza Keys, who was the Los Angeles district attorney at the time, was there to present her with a warrant for her arrest and to take her off to San Quentin Prison. You're going to San Quentin. you got a 41-minute layover here in L.A., but you're going to San Quentin. What happened was that her attorney needed to file an appeal within five days, and he waited nine days. Because her attorney had delayed filing the appeal, no further appeal could be made. The case was not going to be reopened. She was going directly to jail. Clara was speechless and caught. She had trusted Morris Levine, the reporter. She trusted the sheriff. 
She trusted just about everyone to stay above the board with this deal. The district attorney told her to blame her attorney, who was dead after a heart attack. They made it sound like it was a technicality. They used every little technicality they could think of to say, "Uh, no new trial, you're going to San Quentin. So after a 40-minute pit stop at the station, the train traveled 400 miles north of Los Angeles to San Quentin State Prison. Clara was told she would spend 12 years behind bars now, 10 years for her original sentence and an additional two years for her escape. Clara seemed stoic. San Quentin was certainly different from jail. Much harder time. And any hopes of escape were over when Clara saw the guards and the gates. Clara hoped to see Armour again. She was miserable. She believed she had done all of this for him. She hoped for visits. She wanted promises that he would be there for her over the next 12 years. And then they would be together when she got out. But the only thing Armour would offer her was silence. He was devoted to her until she finally got in San Quentin, and then that's when everything changed. That might seem cruel, but remember that Armour was really focused on self-preservation. He was married to the Tiger Woman, so the press was very focused on him, but they didn't seem to be focused on his cons. He might have loved his wife, but he certainly loved himself more. He refused to visit Clara, and he refused to talk about it. Armour didn't like to dwell on the past, and Clara was the past. And so was Alberta Meadows. The press was so focused, even obsessed, with the legend of Clara Phillips that the public's memory of Alberta vanished. The fact that Alberta was now dead completely got lost in the hoopla. That's so typical of the victim. You know, the killer becomes the star and the victim becomes an afterthought. Yeah, and in her case, Alberta kind of faded out of the picture. You would think that Clara's constant conning would stop in prison, that her story would end here. Not yet. When she was first booked into San Quentin, she promised to be a model citizen. But the Tiger Woman would still resurface in the media in the oddest ways. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Three years after she was incarcerated, Clara received word that her elderly mother was dying. Clara begged the warden to let her see her mother before she was gone. 
It was the woman's deathbed wish. She moaned and cried for days, and the warden reluctantly agreed with some conditions. That was her best opportunity to try to get away, but they just put the clamps down on her. They were not going to let her out of their sight. She is heavily guarded all the way down to San Diego. There was no way that she was going to get loose. Clara cried with her mother as she cradled her. And eventually, Clara was returned to San Quentin, and her mother was presumably going to die soon. But Daniel Phillips says her mother's deathbed wish was all a ruse for another escape. It was just another trick from the Weaver family. After all, that was in 1926. She didn't die until 1939. So I think she was used more by her children to try to get Clara out of prison and using that as kind of a scam. About a year later, Clara was resigned to her fate. She still had eight more years on her sentence. She was morose and depressed. She became desperate and she cut her wrists in her prison cell. Guards rushed her to the infirmary, but they were superficial wounds and likely yet another trick. She needed some attention, and she got it. But the stuff that she did from there, as far as the harm she did, it wasn't enough to kill her. It was enough to get attention. And there was even more trouble ahead because Armour Phillips had ultimately lost interest in his wife. One thing that most people don't understand is once she hit San Quentin, Armour never came to visit. Never. Armour had left her, and Clara was devastated. In the meantime, Armour had his own troubles. Police arrested him in 1931 for beating a man over the head with the butt of a pistol, but he was soon out. But Clara didn't know about any of that. She felt abandoned until she found new love interests in prison. That, I think, is what happens when you're an attractive female that has no outlet for your emotions. And she found someone that maybe she could have at least a kind of a jailhouse romance. Clara flirted with a male prisoner named Thomas J. Price, maybe more than flirted. And that got them both into trouble. She got in a little trouble when she was still in Quentin for writing a sort of like lurid love notes. Daniel Phillips says Clara seemed focused on getting out, but she kept ruining her chances. I'm going to keep fighting to get out before my sentence so that I can, you know, have a life. That's what she did with the romantic relationship with that young burglar there in San Quentin when she got caught passing love notes to him. That's something that he got punished for and she got punished for. But it also had repercussions. More on those repercussions soon. In 1932... Clara was transferred to the Tehachapi Prison in Southern California, just west of Santa Barbara, where the warden was determined to offer the female prisoners safety and skills and education. The facility became a model for reform, and Clara Phillips took advantage of all of those things. She acted in a couple of plays. I think she played in one of the bands. What happens is, luckily for her, a women's prison is built in Tehachapi, opens in the 30s. And all the other female prisoners from San Quentin are moved to Tehachapi. Tehachapi is a model for modern reform. So she didn't have much of an education, but she decided that, yeah, she needed to go ahead and improve herself. And that was when she learned to become a dental assistant. And that gave her a career, something that she could fall back on. She made the best of the situation. It didn't mean she accepted it. She just made the best of it. Was this redemption? No. 
Clara was up for parole in 1933, 10 years after she returned to the United States. She expected to be released for good behavior. She never gave people problems in prison. But her affair with that other inmate was a sticking point with the parole board, another example of Clara's self-sabotage. The board looked at her history in prison and decided she was not leaving early. In her case, some of the stuff she did was self-destructive that caused her to potentially have been in prison longer than she needed to. Again, she was there 12 years. It was a 10 to life. She wanted to get out in less than 10. You know, the quicker, the better. Two more years passed, and then in 1935, she had finally served her full sentence. Clara Phillips left prison, and she hoped to be reunited with Armour again, finally. Now that she was free, they could be together. She was expecting to see Armour because Armour had not really been in communication with her while she was in prison. And when she got out of Tehachapi in 1935, never came to visit. Of course, the cops were looking at him for a grand theft charge. So they actually were at Tehachapi waiting for him to show up so they could arrest him. The reporters were there in force because they wondered if Armour would show up. The police wanted him again on some other warrant, and he never turned up. So she was released quietly. It was always Armour Lee Phillips, husband of Tiger Woman, Clara Phillips. You know, everything got him into the papers was not good for him, for his business. Same thing had to do with his traffic violations. They were getting him for one mile over the speed limit. The police were out. So he's yeah. being punished. Yeah. Yeah. So this was not fun for him. And if he got picked up on a DUI or something like that, he had that happen to him both in L.A. and in San Francisco. And he ended up getting out, but he was using that time to learn more about improving his criminal skills. Armour had abandoned her, and Clara was devastated. She left the prison alone and headed to Mesa, a suburb of San Diego. She stayed close to her mother She couldn't leave the state, and she always had to check in with her parole officer, and she was diligent about that. She had basically reached the point, finally, when she finally got down to see her mother and be around her sisters that, you know, Armour ain't coming back. I think he had made a phone call or talked to her over the phone like a year before she decided she was going to get a divorce. All of this ruin over one man But Glenn Martin says that in his experience, psychopaths will obsess over their own self-interests, which are constantly changing. Armour just happened to be in Claire's focus at that time of her life. I'm not as convinced that it was a, a killing over a specific man. And it's been seen so many times through so many years is it's eliminating the competition. It's capitulating to the jealousy. And it could have been any man in that chair. She just wasn't equipped to compete with another woman for the affections of a man. Clearly that's true. But it was much deeper than that. Dr. Catherine Ramsland says that most psychopaths are predestined to create chaos for themselves and everyone else. And one of her most high-profile case studies explained exactly how they do it. You can't see this, but I'll describe it. This is one that a psychopath named Dennis Rader, the BTK serial killer, he calls this cubing. And so in my hand, I have a cube, and on each side, there's a label, like church leader, employee, family man, serial killer. Here's the way this works. They have no roots in any of these. All of them are part of their identity. They can pivot quickly to whichever one works for them in any given situation. 
So if for now, family man is working, that's what they're going to present to you. But they can quickly change to a different side if the opportunity arises that they consider to be in their self-interest. So just like BTK, Clara pivoted to a different identity. They're not rooted in identity the way most of us are. Most of us see ourselves in a certain way and want to think there's consistency in our presentation to people and there's integrity in the things that we say, that if I said this, I mean this. But that's not in their thinking at all. They don't really care if they're telling the truth or not. What they care about is to get what they're out for and so they can pivot to the very next thing so fast. Even if you have it on record, you can be recording what they say. They're not even going to acknowledge it because they know it doesn't matter. If you tell them you just lied, I have you on tape, you lied, they'll shrug it off and walk away, and maybe they can manipulate you. If they can't, they'll go on to the next person. And Dr. Craig Newman says it's important to be aware of personality disorders, especially psychopathy, because your life might actually depend on it. If you run into a psychopath who potentially is going to try and put hooks in you, the key is is to protect yourself. And one is document. If you can get video of this person's behavior, because they will often be very good at manipulating the justice system. Clara Phillips was determined to be done with the justice system. And after being abandoned for 12 years, she had finally had enough of her husband. Clara put in the request to divorce Armour, and they couldn't find him, primarily because Armour changed his name. He had kind of disappeared. She thought maybe he might be dead, but he didn't contest it. He didn't fight it. Clara might have given up on Armour, but she wasn't quite through with his family. After she was given permission to leave the state, Clara traveled to Pittsburgh. She was on the hunt for a wealthy relative to Con. She was trying to engage with the Mellons family, and unfortunately, she engaged with the wrong guy. William Andrew Mellon had no money. He was also not in very good health. So Clara got nowhere with him. But the newspapers did report something interesting. A reporter wrote that by 1939, Clara was happily married to a man from a wealthy family. That was according to someone who knew her from prison, but it was just more of the lore connected to Clara Phillips. It turns out that story was about armor, not some mystery man. She had already made the transition to, well, I married into the Mellon family, so therefore I'm a Mellon. So therefore, Andrew Mellon, who is the Secretary of the Treasury, (laughs) that's my uncle. That makes me a part of one of the wealthiest families in in the United States. It was how she perceived herself. This is her kind of writing her own narrative. Mm -hmm. Clara still considered herself a melon, but ultimately she was only committed to her own family and herself. You had a very cohesive family unit, and they had one of their members that was in really bad trouble. And what they were trying to do is not sacrifice her to the world, but to keep her as a part of the family unit. When she was released from Tehachapi Prison in 1935, where did she end up going? Right, to Mama. But Clara Phillips continued to be an enigma, especially as she started her new life after prison. She ostensibly vanishes from view, but we know that what she really did was take back her maiden name of Weaver. She learned to be a dental hygienist in prison. She may have done that for a while. She did end up working in, I think, a a fishery, a cannery in San Diego. So by 1940, Clara was divorced from Armour and living with her family in San Diego. And as far as she was concerned, her ex-husband had vanished. 
But Daniel Phillips says that wasn't quite true because he headed north to see his sister in Salinas. And once again, the police targeted Armour. He was coming up from L.A. on 101, and he had an open container in the car. Got stopped by the highway patrol just south of Salinas. The officer let him go, and Armour continued on to Salinas, where his niece Janet lived. I think I was too young to know any of the details of Clara. But all of a sudden, out of the blue, Armour showed up. Just boom, here he was. And he had come up from Los Angeles, from the area. And I think Clara must have been living down there somewhere because I think he was looking for her. I knew he was stalking her. I knew that. I'd heard that. So after Clara divorced him, Armour became obsessed until it became clear that she had moved on. He pretty much kind of headquartered himself in three locations, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York. And the last time he was in California was probably in the late mid-60s, early to mid-60s. He didn't want to die in prison. So he said, I'm out of here. I'm leaving California for good. So that's why he was probably surprised more than anybody that Stephen found him. Let's see. I've got so much stuff here. Stephen McLean was Armour's nephew. And I haven't looked at it in a while. You know what I mean? I've got... Is this all your aunt's stuff? Is that what it is? Well, this is, yeah, this is all the aunt's stuff here. Family photo albums. Look at this. Stephen and his uncle were very, very close. He was the original bad boy, but he was a good man. Okay? That's armor. Handsome. Handsome man. In fact, Stephen went to New York in 1974 when his uncle was dying of cancer. So I used to be in the export business, and I would come back in and out through New York, and I, I visited him on two or three occasions. The last time, unfortunately, he was just a skeleton where he was dying from lung cancer at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. There, there's Armour's wallet, okay? And his, I've got his Social Security card and so forth. See there? And this is his wallet from when he, a few years James, before he died. Yeah, James Peart, exactly. And he had changed his name because of all this Clara business. I think he had reached a point that he was enough of the drama. He changed his name. And, you know, back in those days, there were no computers. No one could cross-reference the Social Security numbers. Armour Lee Phillips disappeared into the history books, and Frank James Pierce replaced him. And he never talked to you about Clara at all? No, and I didn't bring it up. Why didn't you bring it up? Well, I just hesitated to make him delve into the past. Uh, you, some things, sometimes you feel some things are better left unsaid. I mean, I, you were saying why I didn't do it. It was probably just out of uh, respect for him without having to, to broach the gory details. Have you ever wondered about her? Well, about, yeah. I mean, I have, but as I say, it's, it's a convoluted series of tales. And we had always heard that he broke his mother's heart. That went, that's another reason why I just, I didn't want to bring it up to Armour. 
Janet Collins says her grandmother was absolutely devastated over Armour's disappearance. I think she died thinking Armour had died because she didn't know where he was or what had happened to him. We knew that he just did a disappearing act. And I think they must have all taken a pledge of some sort that his mother was not to find that out. That would have been a terrible blow for her. I just knew that he'd had a lifestyle that was scandalous and regrettable. Our family has been a very Christian family, and all of this stuff just kind of flew in the face of of that sort of thing. That was regrettable, too. It still sounds like it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's done. Uh, You cannot bring it back. We all make mistakes, and, and we regret things, but they're in the past. I'm back at the Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale in Southern California. The year before her murder, Alberta Meadows was heartbroken over her husband Jesse's death in a streetcar accident. Alberta told her grandmother that she might consider remarrying, but that she didn't think she could ever love another man. One thing that's lost here is Alberta Meadows. I mean, it's also what happens in true crime is the victim goes away because they can't compete with the killer. Exactly. What role does Alberta Meadows play in this whole story? Other than being the victim, probably not much. Why? Because not much more was known about her. The attention then was focused more on Clara because she was alive. She was still creating news. Alberta, she was a widow. Alberta's family buried her next to her husband, but they never marked her grave. I asked Joan Renner to meet me there. Why do you think they wouldn't put a marker here? Well, I don't think they, I think they didn't put one here originally just because the case was so spectacular. I think they just wanted her to be able to rest in peace and it's the only way it could happen. But isn't that sad that she's been relegated to this? Yeah, Yeah, it is kind of sad. She's just sort of unknown. I'm in Salinas, California with Clara's niece, Janet Collins. She's showing me some keepsakes made by the aunt she never met. Yeah, tell me about the doilies. I guess I was uh, getting married or something, and my folks passed on all this, this set of doilies to me. And there were varying sizes of doilies, large ones, small ones, and, and uh, just nothing too elaborate, but they had a, a linen center. They were all circular. Uh, and crocheted around the edges, maybe an inch or so of crochet. And uh, the only ones I have left, and uh, that's been 60 or 70 years ago, Clara had done while she was in prison. And uh, I still have them. But the little ones are the ones that are left. And so my folks gave me these doilies, and I loved them. These doilies are all Janet has from Clara Phillips. And the remaining members of the Mellon family are strangers. Do you really care about being included in the Mellon legacy? We tried one time to just have a connection, just to have them acknowledge the fact that my grandmother was a bona fide Mellon, Nellie Mellon, from Peachtree, Texas. And they said, we don't know you. 
until James R. Milton III. He said, Jan, I need to get all your children's names and everything. I'm doing this big genealogy. Wow, that meant more to me than anything. You're now acknowledging me and my family as part of the Mellon tribe, so to speak. I mean, that's just amazing to me that there could be such a delineation. Well, now we're being included, you know. Sure, we're over here, but we're still part of the family. We're still included. So what is it like to have this type of history in your family? I think every family has a few skeletons in their closet. A lot of secrets in that family. A lot of secrets that they don't know, inner family secrets. And they were not about to tell each other. It just doesn't really add up. A lot of stuff in the story doesn't seem to add up. Yeah, yeah, and we just let it go. How different would your life have been had you been a melon from another brother? Nah. I mean, isn't that kind of a luck of the draw sort of thing? No. I'm very pleased. I'm so blessed with my life. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Clara Phillips was a mystery even after her death. She had been one of the most notorious female killers in America, and then she disappeared. And who knows who she became and if she hurt anyone else. This is 30 years from when this happened to when she died. What happened in that 30-year span? She went off the grid. The crux of this story seems to me to be partly about family loyalty gone bad. The family was more interested in protecting their own and making sure that they stayed out of harm's way than they were with realizing an individual who had no reason to be killed was dead. And it was because of what Clara did. She never told the truth. And she kept playing this game, this con, all the way until she dropped off the grid. And when she dropped off the grid, her life, I'm sure, completely changed. So in her case, I think she saw her life of doing the Clara Phillips show was pretty much over. And there were no reruns. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us for this season of Tenfold More Wicked. Next Monday, you'll hear the trailer for our next season, which is out March 7th. So subscribe now. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now in hardback and ebooks. More information on the audiobook later. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Laura Sobel. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical true crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmoremedia.com. Subscribe now on Amazon Music, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.